I am very excited about the uh, topic which we are exploring today. It's one which uh, has actually been of interest to me for a long, long time. Back in the early 1980s when I was in graduate school, the uh, the gentleman who was uh, the uh, staff accompanist at the University of Nebraska had a young child and was teaching uh, uh, her baby girl German along with English. And I remember seeing this with my own eyes, hearing it with my own eyes, and just thinking it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever heard of. Uh, I didn't know at that point anybody who was interested in teaching their young baby uh, two different languages at once. And uh, over the years, I have found out that this was not at all an isolated instance, that in fact, there's quite a number of parents, more and more in fact, who are interested in exploring this. And so I'm very happy to be able to explore this now in a little more serious way with the authors of a book called The Bilingual Edge, Why, When, and How to Teach Your Child a Second Language. We're going to be speaking today with Dr. Kendall King and Dr. Allison Mackey, who are both linguistics professors at Georgetown University. They have done a lot of writing on the topic of bilingualism and the teaching of language, and this is a personal story for both of them in that they are both parents who have had this experience of uh, teaching their children more than one language. So uh, we have a lot to explore as we talk about this very interesting book published by HarperCollins. And Dr. Kendall King, Dr. Allison Mackey, we welcome you both to The Morning Show. Thank you. you. We're delighted to be here. Good to be uh, having you with us. Help us understand just how widespread a phenomenon this is and if it's something which uh, is actually growing in importance, as it, it seems to, as far as I can tell. Um, absolutely. I think you touch on a really key point there. Um, and in fact, we, um, as you mentioned, are academic researchers. We spend most of our life doing research on second language acquisition and bilingualism for other researchers for the most part, like all academics. And it really wasn't until we had our own children a few years ago that, and as we started to chat with parents on playgrounds and in the grocery store line, we realized how many parents uh, out there were interested in promoting a second language uh, with their child on the one hand, and on the other, how little accessible information there is for parents. Um, The research field has made huge advances in the last few decades, um, but there really wasn't a place where parents could get that information in a way that was really meaningful and that they could apply to their own context. Hmm. So can you give us, uh, uh, is it possible to quantify just where this happens and how much it happens? I mean, do we see this all across the country or, or more in you know, more sophisticated urban centers? And I mean, are, are there any kinds of families who seem drawn to this interesting possibility? Um, I think you're right that this is a growing trend. There was a recent survey that showed that two-thirds of all parents, sorry, two-thirds of all adults, Uh, wish they had studied more foreign language uh, in high school. I think many of us have sort of bad memories of studying French or or Spanish for a year or two in high school and then having the frustrating experience of not being able to use the language effectively if they happen to meet someone for that country or from that country. Um, And parents now realize that those sorts of old approaches don't work and want something better and different for their own children. And that's really what this is a book is about, how parents... um, can um, help children to achieve all of the advantages that come with bilingualism, the academic advantages as well as the cultural and social advantages. And to follow that up a little bit and put it into a more global context, 
Um, what we know is that um, millions of children all over the world routinely grow up as bilingual or multilingual. Here in the United States and a few other English-speaking countries like England, Australia, New Zealand, and so on, um, monolingualism is the norm. Bilingualism is the goal for a lot of people, but monolingualism, monolingualism is the norm. Hmm. You outline early on in the book some of the potential advantages of a young child being bilingual. And, and some of these are, are, are maybe a little beyond the obvious. Uh, tell us a couple of the, of the most important ways in which uh, a, a youngster being bilingual can, can be of, of, of real benefit to them. Sure. I mean, there's so many reasons, and really the different reasons are, are for different reasons are going to be important for different parents. But the ones we talk about in some detail in the book include um, the intellectual advantages. So, for instance, children who are proficient in two, language, two languages outperform monolinguals on specific intelligent tests, and in particular those which relate to learning readiness, or I'm sorry, reading readiness. Um, so that's a hu- you know, huge issue in schools and an important advantage we can give your chil- you can give your children. It's also, there's also strong research evidence that um, children, there are cultural or relational advantages. That is, children who know more than one language are more likely to make friends um, with children f- from different language groups and different ethnic groups. That's increasingly important in today's society. And in addition, we know um, when children get a bit older that they're also going to have economic advantages. Bilinguals outperform, outearn monolinguals on the job market. So there are many, many advantages, not just one. Hmm. The, the last one I think is, is absolutely uh, unquestionable. The, the first couple that you talked about and, and others which you talk about in the book as well, that for instance... Uh, Bilingual children tend to be more creative and and uh, have better uh, skills at focusing and, and and so on. One thing I just wonder though is how do we know what comes first? Uh, because it seems like it might be that 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 bright children or or families that are already very intellectually stimulating are also the families that are going to uh, be drawn to this possibility. Uh, how much do we really know how much do we really know that that these advantages spring from being bilingual that being bilingual is creating some of what you were just describing right that's an important question and social scientists spend a lot of time trying to differentiate what's a, what are what things are causally related versus correlated and they're, and they're two different things of course um, we know that there's a causal relationship here because we have many, many studies. By causal relationship, I, I mean that bilingualism promotes specific sorts of cognitive advantages because we have many, many studies um, looking at thousands of children from lots of different contexts of very different, with very um, different social backgrounds and very different um, aptitude sets. So just as Allison was mentioning that bilingualism is the norm, we have lots of studies from different parts of the world where all children routinely become bilingual. It's only in the U.S. and a few other places where it tends to be sort of an elite um, phenomenon. But in much of the world, all children learn two, three, four languages just as a routine part of growing up. Hmm. And it's important also to see that in the United States, bilingualism is not just... um, for the uh, wealthy elite. 
Um, but that many, many immigrants come to this country with almost nothing, and their children are growing up bilingual. Those advantages that we mention are true for their children as well. And one more that um, people often find interesting, the very latest research suggests that um, the, the incidence of Alzheimer's disease is actually much lower in bilinguals who are fluent in both languages, um, additively fluent. Um, so there are advantages at the very later stages of life as well as at the beginning of life. Wow. Yeah, that's an important point. And I just want to follow up by, even though I was talking about elite, elitism, the message of this book is that bilingual bene- bilingualism benefits all children and that both types of parents, by both types I mean English-speaking parents who hope to introduce a second language, can benefit from this book, as well as parents who maybe already have a non-English language in their home and are concerned about maintaining that language, be it Arabic or Spanish or Chinese, as well as promoting English um, for their children. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Kendall King and Dr. Allison Mackey about uh, their book called The Bilingual Edge, Why, When, and How to Teach Your Child a Second Language. Uh, The point you were just making about how this is really something that uh, only elite families might enjoy is, of course, one of a number of myths about bilingualism, which uh, which your book lists at one point. And, and it's really quite interesting. I mean, some of the alarm bells, which uh, some people might raise, which uh, in fact don't, don't need to have uh, any, uh, that really in fact don't need to be all that concerned about. One that, I, that, that really struck me is, is kind of interesting is uh, the myth that mixing languages in the home is going to create uh, confusion and that separating the languages cleanly is is the best way for for children to to learn language at all. I mean, one can understand how someone might sort of concoct that myth, but uh, you firmly believe that that in fact is not the case. Well, and it's not just that we believe this. There's lots of evidence that show that shows this to be the case. So what, um, this is probably one of the biggest concerns that parents have, that is that their children might be confused, they might be delayed um, if, if they're exposed to two languages from an early age. And the research is quite clear. Children do not become confused. Um, all children, when they're developing, um, if they're exposed to two languages, do typically go through a period of mixing those two languages, but it's typically very short-term. It's not a sign of any sort of problem, um, but it's a natural part of sorting out those two systems. Hmm. absolutely nothing for parents to worry about. This, uh, this person that I knew back in the early 1980s, back in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, I can still remember so vividly, with his very, very young daughter, um, mm-hmm. he raised his hand and said, what is this? And she said, uh, it's your hand. And then he, uh, in the next instance, asked, was ist das? And she immediately responded, uh, das Hunt or dein Hunt. I forget what, what exactly she said, but the point was <laughs> she answered the German question in German and the English question in English with, without any problem whatsoever. And th- right. that was a huge revelation for me just in that instant that that such a thing uh, indeed would be possible and probably for the youngster in question, a lot of fun. Yeah, and not, not only a lot of fun, but very good for them intellectually. Think about what that child is doing. She's learning that there um, are two words for one object. That's a pretty p- important lesson for all kids to get. Um, and that it's possible to move back and forth. And when children are exposed to two languages, 
that's a little bit of an artificial example that you gave, but you know, in a home when two languages are being spoken, children learn very quickly to differentiate um, who, which language to use with which parent, and even from a very young age, how to use which language in the right way to get the cookie that they want or the television program. So, um, children are very sharp at picking that up, and it's it's not a it's um, there's no risk involved. I guess is what I mean to say. Hmm. Uh, you devote uh, quite a sizable portion of the book to. Uh, kind of a dual question, which is very interesting to to ponder. Which language and when? (laughs) And uh, both of those are really juicy questions. Let's start with the first one, and that is, uh, what should that second language in the home uh, be? And you outline a number of different things which a a family might want to consider in in, in making a good choice here. Uh, Explain a couple of the most important. Well, um, a lot of families already have a heritage language in the home, or one of the parents speaks a language fluently, or maybe both. And for those families, it's the which is quite an easy question to answer. Um, in my own case, for example, um, we didn't have an obvious second language in the family. Neither my husband nor I are fluent speakers of any second language. And that's another message of the book, that you don't need to be a fluent native speaker in order to introduce your child to more than one language. What you do need to do is take an inventory of what's around you and what's going to impact your success. So in the book, we talk about exactly how to do this with a checklist. Um, One of the things is to look around you in the community. What sort of resources are there? How many speakers of what sort of languages are around? Can you find bilingual parenting groups or bilingual play groups? Can you find bilingual story hours at the local library? Can you find music and movement classes in the second language? Um, What we know is that human languages are learned through interaction with other humans. So what you're looking for is people, not just you, for your child to be able to interact with. So in choosing which language, that's one of the concerns. Another concern is, what is it that you want for your child in the end? Are you looking for them to communicate and how? And that leads us into the next question of when. So, for example, if you're looking for your child to become um, a very proficient native-like sounding speaker, so a person who sounds almost like a native of the language, then it's best if you can introduce your child to the second language very early on. We know that early is very much the best for accents. However, later can be fine also because research has shown us that older children sometimes learn a bit faster because of their greater cognitive maturity. They're more able to... um, to pick things up certain grammar points quicker. So the message of the book in relation to when is it's never too early and it's never too late. Mm. And the message in relation to which is look around you and see what's available to you. How are you going to be helped and how can you get the most human interaction? Just to follow up, people oftentimes ask us which language is going to be easier or harder? And our message is that that question is much less important than which languages surround uh, you in your home, in your community, uh, and that's going to have a much greater impact in determining your ultimate level of success. Hmm. Back to the when for just a moment, because I think uh, a very interesting point raised in your book, which uh, I would love to hear you just expand on just a moment, uh, is is the capacity that, that babies, I mean infants, have uh, 
a, a capacity which apparently we, we lose at some point thereafter. You say babies do not know where they are going to live and what language they will need to speak, so they need to be born with the ability to hear the difference between all sounds. Um, That's right. And this is a skill apparently at, at some point which declines. Tell us a little more about how we know this and uh, and 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 what the significance of this is within the topic that we're discussing today. Sure. So as you say, all babies are born citizens of the world, right? They don't know where they're going to be born and they have the capacity to learn any language. Um, however, we know that this capacity starts to diminish around eight, nine months of age. So pe- uh, researchers have been able to um, test this by um, using different sorts of techniques you can use with infants, such as pacifiers, which are hooked up to monitors, so you can judge how quickly um, the child is sucking. So children are going to suck harder and faster when they hear a new sound. Um, So when they're very, very small, they will hear differences between um, two sounds in a language that we can no longer hear. Um, However, uh, around eight, nine months, they begin to lose that capacity. And two things are really happening here. They're beginning to tune in to their own language. Around this time, some uh, children are beginning to speak their first words around one year of age, so it makes sense they're tuning in to their own language, and they're beginning to tune out, that is, to no longer to be able to hear, to discriminate between sounds in a language to which they're not exposed. And so that relates to what Allison was saying, in that younger is better in terms of accent, um, in in that that sort of perceptual or sound discrimination seems to be one of the features of language which is most sensitive to age. However, it's not impossible. It's not. Um, it's, uh, certainly, there are people who learn a language a bit, you know, beyond year uh, year one or year two and sound very, very proficient, almost native-like. It just it, it becomes a bit more difficult as as we mature. Hmm. A lot of your book uh, deals with. Uh, how this is implemented if parents make the decision uh, to do this and once you've chosen what the language will be and maybe chosen when in the child's life this second language will be introduced, then you you give us just a host of ideas about uh, the best way to do it. It seems to me that two of the themes which seem to predominate, I mean, across various age groups and so on, is first of all the idea of having fun, of making it fun, and the idea of incorporating the use of the second language uh, into the texture of, of, of everyday life. Let's talk about both of those principles and, and some of the specific ways in which uh, you suggest that, that those be acted out. Thanks. That's a very nice summary of what we were trying to do, so we appreciate it. Yeah. Um, in relation to keeping it fun, we um, have found um, in our own lives, as well as um, looking at the research findings, that um, children really won't make a big deal of learning a second language if you don't make a big deal of it either. If you introduce it as a routine part of life, um, and if you make sure that, for example, you know, when they're playing with the cool kids on the playground, that both languages are available to them in the playground, then they'll enjoy it. It will be a part of what they're doing. They will see it as routine. They will pick it up and they will not um, go through, you know, difficult periods with it. However, we do in the book also talk about, and for your listeners, um, 
sometimes this is a question that comes up. What happens when children do um, find, what, what happens when they do argue a little bit with using the second language, particularly with toddlers who are liable to argue with you for anything, even wearing a T-shirt? Um, so we go through some of the tips and tricks that you can use then um, to keep your toddler on board with the second language, associating it with particular toys, incentivizing children at different ages with different ways. So, for example, toddlers, it's toys. With older children, it can be um, uh, more advanced things like the prospect of a trip abroad, a meal out, um, possibly even some kind of uh, education and entertainment at the same time. Um, there are many ways that you can, uh, you can keep that language as part of something which is a happy, active process within the home. Hmm. And just to follow up, I think um, we, it's important to recognize that it's very hard to make children do something they want, don't want to do. Um, and I think language is perhaps even more true of that than eating your vegetables or wearing your socks in the winter. Um, we really can't make children do anything. The most we can do is set up the opportunities and the incentives for them to want to use the language. And so that's really the framework um, that uh, we use when we approach this topic. And as you say, we have lots of tips and tricks to try to make that work for children of different ages and with different interests. Hmm. How much of this book stems out of your own personal experience as mothers doing this with, with your own children? Well, part of the reason we wrote the book, as Kendall said earlier, is because we really crossed the threshold from our lives as academics and researchers into our lives as parents um, about three and a half years ago when we had our children. And we found that um, not only we wanted to expose our children to more than one language, but also other parents had lots and lots of questions for us. First of all, when they saw us doing it, but secondly, just when they found out, oh, you're linguists, well, I want to teach my child a language, how do you do it? What, you know, what sort of things do I need to consider? When should I do it? Which language? Is that a difficult language? Well, as soon as we got to that stage, we started to look around the popularly available parenting literature and the education literature to find some book that we could be recommending. But as it turned out, there actually wasn't anything popularly available. So that's why we put our heads together and decided to write the book, because there really was nothing available at the time. Hmm. Um, as we wrote it, and it took us you know, a year or two to write it, our own experiences came through um, in that we talked about the things that we ourselves had faced and were facing, because it is a process. Learning a language is not like riding a bike when it stops. It's a lifelong process. Hmm. And I, I just, just to follow up with this, so certainly sort of some of the inspiration and the motivation to write this book was born with our own children. But at the same time, it's not a book about our experiences solely, or it's not even about our theories of language learning. Um, you, you know, parents buy lots and lots of books. I probably have 10 books on sleep, <laughs> how to get your child to sleep on my shelf. And each one is typically a one-person theory about how what worked for them and what they think parents do. This is a book that's really based on decades of social science and hard science from across a number of different fields, synthesized in a way that parents can access, um, and sprinkled with lots of anecdotes, both from ourselves and from our friends and parents who we know through our research. And of course, all put together in, in a very, very accessible sort of way. I mean, that's one of the things that impressed me most about this book is that for as, as much as it is based in, in strong scholarly research, this is also not an intimidating scholarly tome when you sort of feel like you need a master's degree just to, to buy it at the bookstore. But, I mean, this is a book written uh, with, with regular people in mind. 
Thanks. That Thank was you. our aim, to talk to our friends and our family. <laughs> the book again one is... Reviewer said it was like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say, one review, one, the best review we got, a reviewer said it was like having coffee with us. So that was the goal. <laughs> Very good. The book, again, is called The Bilingual Edge, Why, When, and How to Teach Your Child a Second Language, uh, filled with all sorts of, of, of interesting tips on, on how to do this, how to do this well, and, and a lot of uh, writing on, on why it's an important thing to do. And uh, the book is published by uh, HarperCollins. The authors, uh, Dr. Kendall King, Dr. Allison Mackey. I thank both of you for writing this uh, very interesting book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Best wishes. Thank you. Thank you very much.